listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit www.jointheventure.com. Who am I? Let's see. Well, first I'll introduce you to my wife. This is JL right here. Raise your hand. That's uh, my wife, JL. She just finished the RN program, praise God. She's got to take an NCLEX, then she'll be done. So we're pretty excited about that. Um, now, let me just let you know a little bit of where I've been this last year. Uh, I was in youth ministry up in Illinois for the last four years. And uh, last August, I, I quit my job. Um, and then we found out a week later that jail had one more class left. So I, had, I didn't have a job anymore, though, because I already quit. Um, and so I had to move down to North Carolina. She had to stay up in Illinois to finish. Um, and so we're 14 hours away from each other um, for six months, really, from December through May. That's pretty hard. We've never really spent, you know, more than a weekend away from each other. Uh, we've been married seven years, and marriage is great. Um, so in this time period uh, of moving, we sold basically everything we owned. Couches, TV stands, everything. Uh, got rid of everything. We, 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 when we moved up to Illinois originally, we moved in a 26-foot U-Haul. When we moved down, we moved in a 12-foot U-Haul. Um, we moved into my mom's house, uh, and which, you know, out of all the sacrifices we made, that is the greatest. That is by far uh, the greatest. And we're doing all this just so we can raise the support, so we can go to Cameroon, so we can start these discipleship-making machines, these schools where we're going to impart our character, our wisdom, our knowledge of Scripture into these kids, so they can grow up in the Lord and then want to do missions work as well, want to spread schools, want to start churches. Uh, and the goal is to then take this and, and bring the people that we disciple through all of Africa. Africa, I'm just, I'm getting, anyway, we'll talk as long as I can, just pull me off stage. Um, uh, all right, all right, all right. So all of Africa is basically divided into two languages, English and French. There's a couple of three countries that speak Portuguese, but for the most part, you can reach all of Africa through English or French. And so Burkina Faso, sorry, Cameroon, where we're going, is divided, and part of the country speaks English, the other part speaks French. And so the goal is to start these Christian schools, one on each side. Uh, and in doing this, um, then we can send missionaries and evangelists out to all of Africa. Our goal is to save all of Africa. Our goal is to save the whole world, right? Amen? Amen. Amen. But we're, we're, we're settling with just the continent of Africa. And we believe God can do this because he's a big God. Amen? We got a big God. And so this is what we're going for. Um, but just let me give you a little more info on what we've been our last year. So here, I'll move this. I'm going to be playing with this this whole time. I know it. So uh, this last year, like I said, jail has been in Illinois. I've been in North Carolina. Uh, and so it was January 30th, and I'm like, it's been like a month I haven't seen my wife. I would like to go see her. So I drive up, take this 14-hour uh, adventure to go to Carbondale, Illinois, the southern Illinois, to go visit her. Excited, super enthusiastic. I get off work at 5 o'clock. Um, about 3 in the morning, I'm in Clarksville, Tennessee. Does anybody know where that is? All right, so it's, it's 9 hours away from Wilson, so it's probably 10 and a half from here, if I had to guess. Anyway, it's a long ways away. I get past Nashville, going up north in Clarksville. There's nothing here. It's desolate here. It's the wilderness. And my car breaks down, 3 in the morning. It's 7 degrees outside. It is cold. And you might be thinking, well, just turn on your car so you get the heat, right? Well, you can't do that because uh, the radiator hose blew off of my car. There's smoke coming out everywhere. And if I turn my engine on and turn the heat on, well, one, heat won't work because there's nothing to go through the coils. Anyway, besides that, we're not going to get into that. Um, it, it won't work, it, I won't be warm, and my car will overheat, and my engine will be completely broken. So I pull over completely, call all the tow trucks. 
No company's answering their phone. I don't know, they're just like three in the morning, it's done, I don't care, I can't, there's not enough money to pay me to get up. Nobody answers the phone. So eventually I call 911, not knowing what else to do. Is this probably the best thing to do, you guys think? Call 911, not sure. I'm like, hey, my car's stranded. It's cold. If I have some pliers, I could put the hose back on, fill it back up. I couldn't, I couldn't get the hose back on because you got the little clips you need pliers for. Anyway, cop finally comes. I, an hour. I'm sitting in my car for an hour and seven degrees, just shivering, trying to keep myself warm. Um, the cops pull up. I'm so excited. I jump out of the car and run to them, realizing in the way that you're not supposed to approach cop cars because they have guns. And so I get to the cop car, and I stop, and then I bring my hands down, and I show them I don't have any weapons. And then I turn around and put my hands on the back of my car. You know, maybe I've watched too many police movies, but I just don't want to get shot. You know, goal was the first fixed car. Goal has changed. Goal is not to get shot. The cop comes up. His name is Moses. I'm like, Moses, you came to rescue me from the desolate land. Finally get the, get the radio hose back, put back on. Drive, get to a gas station, fill it up. Make a very long story short, there's a crack in my engine, have to junk the car. Pretty horrible because we were actually planning on bringing that car to Cameroon because it had four-wheel drive, it was a four-runner Toyota. You know, it was, pretty, it was in excellent condition, but the engine cracked. So this was actually a frustrating situation, but also an answer to prayer because it would have been horrible to invest all that money in it, get it over to Cameroon, and then the engine break. So uh, it's really an answer to prayer in a lot of ways. But here's what else happens. So now I've got no car. I've got to fly back from Illinois to North Carolina. Uh, I get back here. Now I'm living with my mom, right? So that's awesome. And so I, uh, I have to drive her car around, which is great. It's truly a blessing I had a car to drive around. But she also is like in water aerobics and Weight Watchers. And she's retired, but she is busy. And so uh, sometimes she has to drop me off at work, which is Okay. Except she's like, Brian, you smell so pretty today. And then uh, when I get to work, she, you know, we can't have this before we get out of the car. She has to tell me she loves me and blow kisses to me when she drops me off. Now, I work at a bank as a credit card call center representative. Longest title ever. And nothing screams professionalism like blown kisses from your mommy. So what do you do in this situation, Right. You catch it and put it in your pocket because there's no, there's no way out of that. You are stuck. You have kisses blown at you. You have to respond. If you ignore it, you look like a jerk. Anyway, this is part of my life. Uh, by the way, God has blessed me with an enormous amount of frustrating situations that always preach well. Uh, so, so I get a car, right? I need a car. I buy the cheapest car I can find that's got low miles, so it's going to last me these next six months. Get an Acura, 98 Acura. The guy tells me nothing's wrong. Literally everything's wrong. Like, for instance, the seat is stuck all the way forward. I spent 20 hours of man, manpower working on that seat to make it. It wasn't just man. I mean, I have to now it's stuck where it is, but at least I can sit in it, you know. And so, I mean, I took the seat. I had, had the seat on the kitchen table. So anyway. Uh, I'm trying to fix one of the headlights, and I go to O'Reilly's. You guys know what O'Reilly's is? Advanced, it's like advanced and all that. So we get to O'Reilly's. I pull up to the front, get out. You get, get the headlight stuff to get it changed. I come back out, and there's a, a brand-new Ford Focus in the same place my car was. And I'm like, praise God. I'm on some hidden game show. I have won a brand-new car. Uh, and then I notice that my car is at the back of the parking lot. See, my car only starts in neutral, and I forgot to put the parking brake on. <laughs> 
And so it just rolled to the back of the parking lot. And uh, praise God it didn't hit anything else because that would have been a very, very frustrating situation. But uh, my car's in the back of the parking lot. And anyway, that is where my life has been the last 10 months. Um, So I'm glad my wife's finally back with me to endure some of these burdens. Uh, (laughs) But life has been interesting to say the least. Now, why I'm on stage, we're going to Cameroon. I expressed that earlier. We've got lots of plans, lots of outreach, lots of things we're planning on doing. Now, has anybody ever felt inadequate? Any hands? Anybody's ever felt inadequate about anything? I had this summer job. I worked construction. And I actually, it was originally given to me by yours truly, Chris. And this is a long story, but I'll tell it very short. I fell off of a roof, landed on a car, damaged it, owed him $1,600. Um, and so I needed, I, needed, <laughs> I needed a job to pay off this money. I was like, Chris, I need, I need a job. And so Chris is like, my, my Uncle Joey works construction. I was like, praise God. So he gets me a job. I'm working construction with his Uncle Joey. In the meantime, I also meet his grandfather, Homer, who also helped me get my first children's ministry, so helped me get me in the ministry. All sorts of blessings that happened from me falling on a car from a roof. But uh, anyway, so I'm working with Joey. Joey gets this new partner named Robert. I've got to look and make sure there's no Robert's not in here because he lives in eastern North Carolina. (laughs) All right, I don't see him. Anybody in here? Anybody's uh, name Robert in here? Nobody? All right, so I'm safe. I'm not going to talk. All right, so, all right, so Robert is my boss, uh, co-boss, and uh, we nickname him Big Bird uh, because he's big and tall and he's simple-minded like a bird. And so uh, we nickname him Big Bird. I'll get Joe, that was actually Joey's nickname, but I partook. And uh, I'm framing this. Let me go ahead and put the stand in. All right, so I'm working, uh, I'm framing the inside of a bathroom, and I'm not very good at construction, honestly. I'm not very good, um, but I know how to use everything, but I'm just still not, still not very good. And so he's got me framing the inside of a bathroom, and he's like, Brian, you can't take a thousand hits to hammer this, you know, this 20-penny nail into these two-by-fours. It's going to mess everything up. We need everything to be measured and leveled and, and good, right? So you just have to hit it in as few hits as possible. So, and he's looking over me, just like peering down on me, which is, you know, he's a little rough around the edges. He's not very nice. And it's just, it just increases the anxiety of trying to perform, right? So I'm ready. And I'm like, all right, all right, all right, all right. I got this. I got this. And he's like, he looks down at me. He says, Brian, carpenters settle a nail in one swing. Thanks, Robert. Thanks. I could tell you've just made this an amazing work environment. Compare me to a real carpenter, obviously I'm not one. I don't fit your mold. I appreciate this. You're making this distinction right off the bat in our relationship, right? First time ever working with them. And then I go to hit the nail, and it goes in crooked. And so I start, I'm like, so I start trying to hammer it out. And, you know, what do you do in these situations when uh, you're in this moment of truth and you mess up? What do we do? We make excuses, right? Is what we do. Make excuses. So, I, I mean, we really see this a lot in the sports arena. You guys, who's watching the uh, World Cup? All right, so if you watch a soccer player kick the ball and it goes the wrong direction, you'll see them look at their foot. Like, was there a mud on my shoe that would allow for the misdirection of the ball? I don't know how that would have happened. I'm a professional. Let's try not to make eye contact with anyone. You know, I mean, it's, it's, is this thing falling on me or did I lower it? 
All right, so anyway, uh, you also see this in basketball. If you guys ever watched like a 45-year-old man who hasn't shot a basketball in 25 years, and they're walking across the gym, they're like, give me the J! And they compl- complete air ball, and everybody's expecting it to be. He's the only one that expects it to go in. And uh, you see him looking at his hand. Like, is there a deformity on my hand? Why would I have missed that? I always make that 30 years ago when I used to play. And so it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. People make excuses when they mess up, though. And so I, I knock the nail, and it goes in crooked. And so I look at Robert, and I'm like, there must be a knot in the wood that would have make it go like, I'm a good carpenter, and that's why I didn't go in. You can't, you can't, you can't see the knot. Because it's deep inside the wood. See, a knot is when a branch is going to grow from a tree. And the branch was going to grow, but it didn't quite get there because they cut the tree down. And so the, it's a, it's a, it was going to be a knot. You just can't see it. It's deep inside the wood. And uh, so he's like, Brian, just take it out. Remeasure everything. Remeasure everything. He's like, get everything remeasured. Get everything leveled. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to be a real carpenter this time. Bam, like a pro. Ready? One hit. Shoots across the room. And he looks at me and says, Brian, why do we pay you? Now, if that does not just bring a flutter to your heart of compassion, I don't know what will. Because I'm pretty? Because I bring up the average IQ of all the workers? <laughs> and so he says, Brian, I happen to have another nail. So I'm good. Hold on to that. It's a souvenir. I have another. So, uh, yeah, yeah, right, right. And so... Now, the whole reason why he's not helping is because he's carrying an 80-pound bag of concrete on his shoulder the whole time. So he has his on his shoulder the whole time while he, he peers at me. And so with one arm, he takes it, he settles it. The next swing completely drives it. I'm obviously not a real carpenter yet. But in one swing, he completely drove the nail into the wood. It was absolutely amazing. And so I looked up to him, and I said, I loosened the wood for you. The knot, I loosened the knot up for you. That's why I went in. My expertise is what made this possible. And, uh, oh, man, it was great. It was great working with that guy. I'll tell you what. Why do we pay you? Have you guys ever felt that inadequate about something? Have you? Has anybody ever felt that bad? I mean, it happens, right? Inadequacy can really hurt us. Here, I'm going to lay this down right here. Inadequacy, these feelings... Can call, are very, very harmful. They can prevent us from doing a lot of things. They can prevent us from applying for certain jobs. They can apply us for trying to achieve a goal. They can prevent us from trying to become evangelistic. They can prevent us from serving God. They can stop us in so many ways. There are some areas in life that you just cannot let feelings of inadequacy stop us. One would be, for instance, being a parent. Who here has a kid and is like, I'm ready. I was ready to wake up at 3 in the morning and feed the kid. Who said this? No one has ever said that, ever. In the history of the world, no one has ever said that. But you can't let, I mean, parents can't retreat from their job, can they? They have to persevere. And also, I think a lot of kids, they get 18 or 20, and they start to move out of their parents' house, or 29, and move back into their parents' house. And, uh, you know, they they just don't feel like they're ready to be on their own. Maybe they're just not ready to pay all their bills or they're not ready to uh, do their own laundry or all these sort of things. And these feelings of inadequacy almost want to prevent them from moving out. Another area where feelings of inadequacy prevent us is serving God. Now, the inspiration of this sermon is that idea. When when Jail and I first started telling people that we're going to Cameroon, you know, they're like, well, what is the water like? The water's horrible. a matter of fact, if you drink the water, you die. 
Uh, and so we have to get all these special filtration systems. And there's like, well, is there malaria? Everywhere. All the mosquitoes have malaria. Every one of them that bites you get malaria. And they're like, well, well, what is the medical conditions if you get malaria? Horrible. All the hospitals, you go and you die. You just go in there and die. And so, uh, you know, they're like, why would you want to go to this place? And, you know, our answer is, well, people are going to hell. and We think they need to have the opportunity to make a decision for Jesus Christ. We want to try to instill something into this world that, uh, that will hopefully benefit it for the kingdom of God. And they say, Brian, I could never do that. I can never do that. And my thought is, why? Why can't you? And their answer is, I don't feel capable. I don't feel adequate. I got good news and bad news. The bad news is you're not adequate. And neither am I. The good news is God has a pattern of using inadequate people to do his will. A matter of fact, throughout the entire scripture, throughout all of history, all he has used is inadequate people. So raise your hand if you're inadequate. You fit the mold for God to use you to do his will. And it's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. So what we're going to do is we are going to go through some people in the Bible that everybody thinks are amazing. And we're going to exploit some of their inadequacies to make us feel a little better. If you guys want to turn to Hebrews 11, we will be there. Now, Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I believe he wrote the book of Hebrews. There's some discrepancy of who the actual authorship is, but I believe it was Paul. And, in, and you, if, as you read through Hebrews chapter 11, you're going to notice all these names of these great guys. But it's not going to mention their sin. And now the reason it doesn't mention their sin is because we're now in the New Testament when Christ's blood has already covered them. So it doesn't mention their sin because they had faith in the Savior to come. Therefore, their sins are no longer mentioned. No longer are they accounted for their sins. So as we read through this, we don't see their sin. We just get some of the, just some of the great things they did. But to really get the whole story of their life and their character flaws, you really have to read, spend a lot of time studying the Old Testament. So we're in Hebrews 11. I'm going to start with verse 7. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Now, when we think of this story, you know, it's like Noah, all right, God tells you to build this ark in dry land. Everybody's got to be looking at him like he's crazy, like absolutely crazy. And it's, it's, it's something to admire Noah for saying, I'm going to do it anyway. This seems crazy, but God has asked me to do this, and I'm going to do it. And that's amazing faith right there. God said, do it, I'm going to do it. And we applaud them. We're like, yeah, Noah, yeah, Noah. But what happens when Noah gets off the boat? He becomes a drunk nudist. It's like, so you went from being this very obedient person to being completely disobedient. But like, this is the person God chose to do this. Out of all the people in the world, he chose this guy who had these character flaws that could possibly make him a drunk nudist. And it was okay, because God still used him. And we keep reading, and we get to, uh, we get to verse 8 it says, of Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And we look at this story and we're like, Abraham. God chose Abraham. You know, he could have chose everybody else in the world. He chose Abraham to be kind of this first person that God's going to start really working through to bring Jesus Christ back into the world. And God's like, Abraham, go. And Abraham says, all right, I'm going to go. I have faith. I'm going to listen. But if you study out Genesis, what we find out is God said, Abraham, go by yourself. Leave your family. And Abraham's like, all right. And then he takes his 
father, his, his father and his nephew with them. And they go to the land of Haran. They're supposed to go to the land of Canaan. They go to the land of Haran. Now, Haran is known for worshiping the moon, known for idolatry. God wanted him to get away from his idolatry. He wanted to, him, for him to escape it so God can work on him and use him in the land of Canaan. But Abraham spent several years in the land of Haran participating in even more moon worship than he was before that. And then he went over there. I mean, Abraham literally delayed the plans of God for several years. Delayed the plans of God. And God was still like, Abraham is the man I want. Abraham is the man I want. Now here's what's interesting. We see Jesus talks in the New Testament. He says, he, says, uh, he, talks, this, he talks about let the dead bury the dead. And he's saying this in reference to a man choosing to be obedient to Christ or Jesus over his father. And you know, this is exactly what Jesus, I mean that's a lot of commitment. To say that I'm going to be obedient to Jesus over all things else. Everything. And he makes this command, he says, you know, you have to put the kingdom first. You have to be obedient to me. You have to let the dead bury the dead. And the thing is, this is what we're supposed to do. But often in the scriptures, we see he uses somebody with a lot less than that. And that's what's amazing. We're all working to this commitment level. But he uses us before we get there a lot of times. And so it's pretty astounding. And we move on and move along the stories. We see Sarah... Abraham's wife, God says, I'm going to give you a son. And she starts laughing at him because she doesn't believe him. And yet God was still able to use Sarah. And we see Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Jacob was a cheater and a thief. And he's, he's, he's Isaac's son. And he's part of this lineage. And then Jacob has a son named Judah. And Judah's going to be the leader of one of the tribes of Judah, whom Jesus is going to actually be born through. And Judah sells his brother into slavery. It's just you go one after another. Each one of them had an issue, had a flaw. We get to some of the prophets and we see, no, we see Jonah. Jonah's told by God to go to the Ninevites to tell the nation to repent. Jonah tells God, no, straight up, no, I'm not going. He, and God still uses him. He puts him in the belly of the fish, vomits him on land. He goes to the Ninevites, the Ninevites repent. God uses someone who did not want to be used. And we doubt that God can use us who do want to be used. Who wants to be used by God to do his will? We all want to, right? If we want to be used by God and we have faith that he can use us, he can use us whether we're adequate or not. Because the truth is we're not. He has a pattern of using inadequate people to do his will. We get to King David. And some of you might be thinking, man, David. David was a great man of God. He did lots of amazing things and he often, you know, he often stood up for God when needed be. But we see that when, when Samuel, the, the judge, was going to the household of Jesse, which is David's father, to pick a king for Israel. He gets to the household and he says, line up all your sons. And Jesse calls them all up except for David. He's like, hey, that guy's a little slow, leave him in the pasture. Yeah, I don't know what he was thinking, but he's like, you can't use him. Like his own father did not believe in him. Like if my mom was here right now, she'd be still blowing kisses to me. She would still be blowing kisses to me because she always trusts me and believes in me or whatever. And it's crazy. But parents usually believe in their kids, right? But Jesse did not have enough faith in his own son, David, that God could use David. And then, of course, we see David finally has become king and he's used. And then he gives into adultery and murder with Bathsheba and Uriah. Then we see his son, Solomon, who's the wisest man to ever live, gives into adultery and idolatry. And we, as we keep going on, we can keep finding more and more of characters that God used in history that were inadequate. 
We get to Nehemiah, and what did Nehemiah offer? Nehemiah, one of the last people in the Old Testament, he had to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem after they'd been away for several years. For a long time, they come back down. He's going to rebuild the city. The Israelites are going to have their land back. And what would give Nehemiah the credentials to do this? He was the bartender of the king. He was the bartender of the king. And this is the type of responsibility God, God bestowed upon him. And the list goes on. Moses, what a great man. Brought the Ten Commandments, right? What a man of God. But he was 80 and had a speech impediment when he did this. And yet God was able to use him to do some amazing works of faith. And we haven't hit the New Testament yet. The New Testament is spread. The good news of Jesus Christ is spread by thieves and sailors, uneducated Rough men who had literally everything wrong until God showed him the right way. I'm talking about Paul here. Uh, we see some, some descriptions of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. It says that uh, he did not preach the gospel with elegant speech. Chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, it says that Paul was meek in person. He seemed insignificant. And so to think of Paul, Paul was this insignificant bad speaker, but yet he brought the gospel around a large area. I mean, the amount of land he traveled is like traveling from Alaska to Columbia. That is a large distance of land. He traveled that amount of land, not Columbia like any city in a state, like Columbia, South America. Like that is a long distance, but the area he traveled was equivalent to that amount of land. And he did this as this insignificant bad speaker because God was able to use somebody like this. Now, I think probably part of it is we have to recognize our flaws. Because if we think we can do it on our own, that, Moses had that issue. Moses thought he could do it on his own. He thought he could free his own people when he was younger. And God couldn't use him then. But once he recognized that he can't, be, he can't do it, then God was able to use him. So there's a lot of humility involved. Recognizing that we're inadequate and then God is able to truly use us. You know, we get to some of these other people. We see, uh, we see Timothy had stomach issues. We know Epaphroditus almost died. Mark, who, who traveled with Paul, was unable able to handle the work for a while, so he quit. We see Simon did witchcraft. Peter was scared. Thomas doubted after seeing miracle after miracle. I mean, do I have to go any further? These people were inadequate to do God's will, yet God used them time and time again. Reality is, we, in our minds, would not think Jesus even fit the mold to be used by God. Because after all, Jesus was an uneducated carpenter. I'm not saying he wasn't smart. He obviously was smart, but he didn't go to school. Therefore, he was uneducated. But he was an uneducated carpenter whom God obviously used to save the world. Now, he is God, so he obviously knows all. But still, the point is, in our minds, what we would consider somebody who God could use, Jesus would not fit the mold. And that's the issue is, we don't choose what type of people God uses. God chooses what type of people he uses. And that's an encouraging thing. That is an encouraging thing. So here's the question is, hopefully I've made it clear that we can all be used by God, right? We can all be used by God. How does he use us? You know, in the Old Testament... His, his purpose was to, to, to bring Christ into the world so that salvation was offered. So, so redemption was possible. And he does this, you know, he, he, he instills the Ten Commandments so the people can look at these and see 
where they're wrong. He then instills animal sacrifices where the people had to literally lay their hands on the animal to represent their sin leaving them and going on to the animal. Then they had to kill the animal right there in front of the priest. And they did this, you know, God instilled this so they can see what the punishment of their sin was. Death has to come with sin. And then it made them aware of their need for a savior in redemption. And so then Jesus Christ comes into the world, and it seems like all is whole. So what is our objective? If the Old Testament's been accomplished through this, what is our objective under the New Testament? The answer is found in another question I'd like to ask. What is the only thing that matters on the day of judgment? We know judgment's going to happen, right? So in Romans, the book of Romans that Paul wrote in chapter 14, verse 10, he says, We will stand before the judgment seat of God. He says in Hebrews 9.27 that after man dies comes judgment. There's going to be this judgment when we die. What is the only thing that matters on that day? I'll give you a list of things that don't matter. It does not matter what sports team you cheered for. It will not matter what hobbies you have, what kind of degree you got in college, whether you lived in a trailer or a big house, whether you're in shape or obese. If you are popular or socially awkward, it will not matter. It will not matter how many books you have read, how many trophies you have won. If you were married, if you were single, it won't even matter how much of the Bible you have read. It will not matter if you wore designer clothes or if you shopped at Goodwill. It will not matter whether or not you've become wealthy or accepted. The only thing that will matter, literally the only thing that will matter at all, is if you and the people you've come in contact with know Christ or in a relationship with Him. This is the only thing that matters. Therefore, making our only objective as Christians is to bring people back to God. That is our only objective. Now, we can be good at things, right? Who's, who's got something that they would say they're pretty good at? Everybody's got something they're pretty good at, whether it's hunting, whether it's video games, whether it's work, whether it's making money, whether it's spending money. I know some people are very good at spending money. Um, maybe some women are very good at spending money. I don't know. You guys are like, I hate them already. Anyway. All right, so it's, it's pretty good to be, it's not hard to be good at something. You just got to spend a lot of, you know, effort trying to become good at this, right? Spend, you know, 10,000 hours, you become a master, I think is what the statistic is. But uh, and sometimes our fear of being bad will make us want to try harder, right? You know, maybe you played a sport in high school and you didn't want to be the worst on the team, so you just practice outside so you can become a little better. Fear of failure often will make us try harder. Tim Kaiser writes in a book called Serving Leftovers to God. He says, our greatest fears should not be failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Our greatest fear in life should not be failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. We could be amazing at things. We could be a great athlete. We could be amazing hunting. We could be an amazing surfer or the most educated person we know. But none of these things matter if we're not constantly pursuing people to Christ. If we're not, constant, not constantly trying to push them to Him. That's literally the only thing that matters. After Jesus dies on the cross and rose from the grave, you could, uh, I skip my first slide, I'm sorry, just skip my first slide, I apologize. Go to the second slide. Yeah, skip that one. That was a good one. I should have said it. Anyway, go to the next slide. There we go. Thank you. I apologize for that. After Jesus died on the cross, though, and rose from the grave, he came back to give his followers one final command. 
And if we're going to pay attention to somebody's words, for them to come back to life, to, give, to say something, it's going to give us some significance. But he says in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always till the end of the age. And this is our command. This is our commission is to go out and make disciples, to make knowledgeable, biblically knowledgeable lovers of God and people. That's how I'm defining disciples. Biblically knowledgeable lovers of God and people. It'd be equivalent to, I believe, the way Chris says it is following followers of Jesus. The same thing, followers of Jesus. And so, I mean, this is, a, this is an interesting thing. I got this illustration from Francis Chan. You guys know who Francis Chan is? So Francis Chan is, you guys might not know he is, this fine. Um, Francis Chan, he speaks and he says, uh, he says, you know, what's interesting about this verse is uh, this is the king giving this command, right? The king is giving this command. He's like, so if Simon says, pat your head, what do you do? Simon says, pat your head, you pat your head. That's what we do. Simon says, pat your head. Simon says, jump, we jump. Uh, the king says, go make disciples, and we sometimes stop at memorizing it. You know, it's like the king said this. This is a command. This is something that we have to do. As Christians and followers of Christ, this is what we're supposed to do. And so keep that in mind. The king has given us this command. I, uh, I've been to Indonesia, and I, while I was there, I was there back in 2004. And, it, you know, Indonesia is 99.9% uh, .9 Islamic. It's got a very, very high percentage of that. And while I was there, I was talking to a Bible college professor who there's very, very few of those in the whole, in the entire country. So I'm talking to one of them. And I'm asking about the curriculum. And uh, I'm like, yeah, you know, what, what, what's, what's part of the curriculum? What kind of classes do you guys offer? And he's like, well, one of the major things we do is when they're a junior in college, they have to intern at a church plant. I go, oh, that's pretty cool. He's like, and then when they're a senior, they have to plant their own church. And if it fails, they fail. And that's a pretty intense curriculum. Would anybody agree to that? That's pretty intense. But the, the reason is they're like, hey, man, we're 99.9% Islamic. Everybody here is going to hell. we got to do something about it. And so they, they made it very, very, uh, very, very dire need for them to go out and plant churches and start Christians. So they would always have people in the villages trying to start churches. Every, every uh, year they had new people going to different villages trying to plant new churches. And then the next year, the church that was just planted, an intern would come and help them with it. And so it was sort of like a, a, a revolving type thing to get church, as many churches planted as possible. And, you know, some of us might say, well, that's Indonesia. You know, Indonesia is 99.9% Islamic. Uh, they really need the gospel. But I think it's probably just as prevalent in America. Would everybody agree? America's pretty lost. Can we all agree to that? And so there is a lot of work here and a lot of evangelism. We need a lot of encouragement. And if I'm saying anything that might step on toes, I want you to know that I'm saying it from a loving place, a place where, we, that, where, where the message is urgent, though. The message is urgent. People need to be rescued. I, uh, I was talking to a good friend of mine back when I was in, in Illinois. He's an atheist. And I was trying to do Bible studies with him. And uh, he, he posed this question to me. He's like, Brian, if Christianity is such a big deal, why do Christians not take it seriously? He's like, I've got lots of Christian friends. And it seems like none of them take their religion seriously. They'll go and party and drink. And he's like, many of the Christians I know or worse than the non-Christians I know. And I thought that was a, a, a convicting thing to say. That as Christians, we have a large responsibility for trying to evangelize to the world. We got a lot going on. Now, he didn't stop there. He continued. He said, Brian, 
If Christianity is such a big deal, why out of all the Christians I know are you the only one to ever attempt to convert me? Why are you the only one to ever evangelize or try to show the love of Christ to me? No one else has ever done this. If Christianity is such a big deal, why are you the only one? And I think this really puts in perspective the mind of a lot of Christians. You know, we're safe just coming to church, feeling secure, worshiping God here when we're safe. But we don't always feel uh, a, a need, or we don't see the need to go out and spread it past these walls. If the kingdom of God is anything, it is the church that goes out, seeks the needs of others, but also evangelizes to them. I mean, we, we, we're a people that try, we want, we, do we want people to be hungry? No, we don't want people to be hungry. We don't want people to be hurt. We want to stop, stop, stop these situations. But overall, we want to evangelize. Now, Jale and I are very committed to going to Cameroon. Uh, I'm very committed to missions. As a matter of fact, I would not marry JL until I knew she wanted to do missions. I told her that, hey, baby, I love you, but you have to go on a mission strip or I won't marry you. And you have to come back and say you liked it. And so she went to Thailand. I told her she only had to go for two months. She went for three months because she's an overachiever. Uh, she came back, and I was like, do you like it? She says, yes. I says, will you marry me? And we got, we got married very shortly after that, like three months, four months later or something, right? Maybe five months. Anyway, we got married very short after that. And so, uh, you know, we have a large task at hand. We're committed to this. We're committed to starting these, these discipleship-making machines that's just going to continue to spread God's love and God's word. And please, if you have any questions about this afterwards, please, please come tell me. Ask me anything you have. I want to end on this note, though. Who has heard of the man Dashrath Manji? Dashrath Manji. There we go. That's Dasharath. You guys heard of this guy? Nobody's heard of this guy? Awesome. That makes the story way cool. So Dasharath is living in a village in northeast India. His occupation was a farmer. His wife, Bengali Devi, was on her way to bring him some, to bring him some water, because she's just a great wife that wanted to bring her farmer husband some water, right? Now, on her way to bring him some water, she falls and injures herself. She hurts her leg real bad, gets an infection, and dies. Now, the reason she died is because the nearest medical facility was 41 miles away, around the side of a mountain, through some very difficult-to-travel terrain. Now, Dashrath, after his wife died, made a commitment. He said, I am going to make it easier for the people of this village to get to the medical facility. So he spent 21 years digging this path, 21 years of his life digging the path by himself, solo, and he bridged the gap of the medical facility from 41 miles to one mile away. This man has brought literal, like, physical salvation to his entire village. They can now go to the market and have, they have better access to food. They can get the medical treatments they need. He has saved thousands of lives because of this work. And here's what I have to tell you about this. How long would this have taken him if he didn't do it by himself? What if... Two people helped him. I mean, what would that drop that from 21 to maybe 10? Maybe even like 7? Think of how much quicker work it's done when you at least have one person with you. I mean, it, it more than doubles its speed. What if he had five people help him? What if he had 10? What if he had 20 people? What if the entire village helped him do this? He might have done it in like two months, three months. They would have just knocked it all out, hammered it out, and it would have been done. Donezo. Everything where they could just go to the medical facility, get their treatment, get their food. Everything would be amazing and great. Here's why I, say, I tell you this story. 
The task of winning an entire continent to Christ is much larger than digging a hole in a mountain. And we cannot do it without partners. And I ask at the very least that you guys would pray for us. If you're able to give to us, that'd be amazing as well. But at the very least, if you can just please keep us in your prayers. Because there's a large task at hand. Let's pray. My God, my Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you that we can come together, that we can read your word, that we can focus on you. And I thank you, my God, that you use, that you use inadequate people to do your will. I thank you that we have this example throughout history, and it's one we can also follow as well. Thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, and we ask that we can devote every ounce of our life to him. Pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.